Well, welcome to this the journey. This meeting is being recorded. Welcome to the journey. This is, uh, my name is Kevin Polkin, and I have a, a, an extra special guest uh, returning to the journey today. Um, uh, an individual that I've become friends with over the last year or so, we actually work for the same parent company. Um, and uh, she just recently moved uh, to Ohio and as she's transitioning there. But uh, Teresa Gasser is uh, someone that has been uh a resource for me um, in in multiple ways, and just really have enjoyed getting to getting to know you over time. So uh, welcome, welcome to the journey. I think we we did our first episode. I want to say it was it was in the winter. I know that for sure. Um, but I think it was like you know January, December, January, something something along that lines. Yes, so. not not too long ago. And thank you for having me back. I appreciate yeah, it. Not a problem. So uh, just for some of the individuals that may not have listened to the first episode, um, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Like, what do you do for fun? And and some of the, and just moved to Ohio. So why don't you kind of just tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do for fun? And then, uh, and then what do you do professionally? Okay. Well, um, we'll start off with the fun part always. So just, as you said, moved back to Ohio from Ocean Springs, Mississippi, a charming little town with a lot of sunshine back to Ohio where it's not so sunny, but it's a great place. Have family here. Um, important to be near family this time of my life. So I came back up here and, and I've really enjoyed it. Enjoyed being with my children and my niece and her family. So it's been a great time. It's pretty much what I do for fun is just spend time with the family. Love football. Um, I am huge college uh, pro football fan. Um, none of my teams, I have three pro teams, not one of them won yesterday, my favorite being the Saints. Mm. So the goat got us yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> um, love uh, Ohio State football, but also love Auburn and Ole Miss. So I, I have three different colleges. So it, it was a rough football weekend at, at my house, but it was okay. Yeah. Um, love going to the beach and I love to read. And as you know, I write. So mm -hmm. I know a lot of people think writing uh, it is fun. I can only do it when I'm really not stressed out and overwhelmed with things. So that makes it a little bit more difficult because it is something I really enjoy doing. So sure, sure. Those are my fun things. But the beach, you can take me to the beach anytime. Sure, sure. Well, and you did uh, at least have the the one Ohio State absolutely tore up Toledo. I mean, oh, and... it was it was a beating. Oh my! But then goodness. again, we were playing. No offense to any Toledo fans out there, but we, we were we were playing a. a a smaller school so we should have we should have won that game so but yep. it was it was good to win yeah well and that definitely was not what happened throughout uh throughout the you know the teams yeah on saturday because there were some underdogs that ended up playing really well and being some oh, yeah. some bigger teams but in toledo was undefeated at that time and was is one yeah. of the I, I believe one of the favorites in the mac um, even though the Mac is is definitely def, definitely smaller than uh, the Big Ten, but uh, I have a, a a friend of mine who uh, Kurt Kurt Heidelberg um, used to uh, is from Toledo and used to coach at Toledo. He's now coaching over in Europe. Uh, we coached together for a time period in oh, Rockford, wow. and uh, so he's he's obviously a big. Uh, big Ohio state fan as well, but obviously we had to pick and choose. He has to go with his alma mater. And, uh, and uh, I imagine it was a little bit of a rougher day there. <laughs> so, well, a little fun fact, I went to case Western for my, um, for my graduate work, had no clue. We had a football team until the second year we were there, I was studying and all these people were walking by and I said to somebody, where is everybody going? They're like to the football game. I'm like, we have a football team. <laughs> Did not even know we had a football team. Talk about yeah. embarrassing, especially yeah. being a football fan, but yeah, I, yeah it was fun. I, 
And I've been probably a college football fan. I've, I've loved football my entire life, but college football fan has, has always been um, my preference. Um, and, and being able to, you know, watch games, you know, and even just picking up on games, you know, teams that I don't have necessarily any super allegiance to other than, you know, uh, you know, some teams I do more so than others, but just watching good, good football being played is, is really the, the part for me that's enjoyable. Me too. Me too. And I've, I've been very fortunate to meet a couple of um, football players that have uh, played in college and gone on to play in the NFL. And I'll tell you the resiliency of some of these um, college football players who, you know, are slotted to go, you know, to the pros and then have an injury. The, the young men that I've gotten to know um, have just been amazing. Their, their resiliency to move forward. And I'm just blown away by some of the stuff that I, I see them accomplish when their dreams were like shattered, which I know we're going to kind of talk a little bit about uh, suicide and, and depression and all that stuff today, but it's really amazing to me. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and, you know, for, for such a, you know, a small percentage of all the, of all the individuals that are involved with, um, with football at the lower levels, such a small percentage that get, uh, get the opportunity to go and play in the pros and then have a career that lasts more than just a couple of years. Um, is pretty amazing in itself. So I, I agree that yeah. that aspect of, uh, of resilience and, you know, and there's some things to be said. I mean, you know, we, from the, from the Rockford area, we do have, we have five, five individuals from the Rockford area that are now playing in the pros. And wow. um, so one of them is a third stringer that plays for uh, New Orleans. And then James Robinson is playing for Jacksonville this year or, and has been, this is his third year. And he was at a small school, small private you know, a uh, small private Christian school in Rafford and went to Illinois state. And he was an undrafted, um, undrafted free agent got picked up and has started it uh, for Jacksonville every year since. Isn't that crazy? So this is a pretty, it's pretty. Your, your, the player who's at New Orleans has the food. So, you know, yeah. you've got, you've got New Orleans for food. So yeah. that's always a good thing. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, exactly. So, so Teresa, tell us a little bit about what you're doing professionally now and, yeah. and what your, what your background educationally is and then, and what you're doing professionally now. Yeah, so my undergrad was in psychology, um, and then I went on and got a teaching certificate, taught high school for a little while, high school history, knew I was going to get into counseling, go towards my master's. It was just kind of a, a, a way to fill a gap, which I didn't realize was going to actually end up being something that I ended up doing long term. I have a, really a love for teaching. My, my two children's books are educational by nature to help kids with anxiety, depression, and staying safe. And I'm writing another one on uh, 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 on PTSD for children. So it's really going to be a really good book. And I'm really excited about it. It's just, like I said, being creative and finding that time to finish it. Um, right now, I'm Vice President of Learning and Development for Refresh Mental Health. And I get to do what I love. I get to create um, education for people um, who are helping others. And you know, to me, that's really important. I, I remember getting my master's degree and you know, as a school social worker for a while, and realized the need to go into private practice to really work with kids. I felt very overwhelmed with, you know, caseloads of six, 700 people. Um, and there's just, uh, it's impossible to really keep up with that. And I thought I could go in and help the masses in the schools um, and ended up realizing that I really needed to work with individuals. So uh, became a trauma expert and really 
just never looked back from a, an educating standpoint, just kept going, like, I'm going to keep teaching at some level. So I continued doing continued education hours for providers um, throughout my career of owning my own private practice. And um, then this opportunity came along and I realized I could really help educators uh, or help clinicians and non-clinicians with um, supporting uh, people who are coming in and seeking help. And I think, you know, sometimes we, we don't realize how much our administrative staff is right on the front line before even the counselor sometimes. So I felt it was really important to just get to that educational place. And like I said, I've been lucky to do that here at Refresh. Perfect. You know, this being Suicide Awareness Month, right? So, so September's designated um, as, you know, this time period where we, you know, talk more openly and more, you know, uh, actively about um, for, for us specifically at Shatter Our Silence, talking about, you know, what are the factors that lead specifically to young adult suicide? Um, and what are some things that we can do to educate not only the young adults, but their, their family members, significant others, and the professionals that work with them. But obviously we work with um, all demographics, not just young adults. Right. For you, um, you know, we, you know, I don't know if, when did you start, when did you start practicing clinically? When did you start practice clinically? Like I started, rough, roughly? Well, I was doing school social work in 2000, starting in 2003. Okay. Um, so really got to see the shift in mental health over the years, uh, you know, seeing younger and younger people with a suicide ideation. Um, you know, when I started back then, I'm a school social worker, gosh, pretty much until 2009, uh, I was doing school social work um, and, you know, doing some private practice, small, you know, few clients, but not a, a extreme caseload. Um, 2009, I was working on an alternative education uh, program. And that's when I really realized I needed to go into private pra practice full time. Um, saw a lot of increase in SI, um, you know, during my time, my tenure kind of as a school social worker and younger and younger children having mm -hmm. SI that I, I hadn't, I had just not experienced that early on in my career. So it was a big shift for me. Um, and then I started getting a lot of clients who um, were the survivors of people who had completed suicide. And so really, I would say probably 2013, 14 was when I really started to see an uptick in my practice of people that I was working with who had been impacted by suicide at some level, whether it was somebody who had contemplated it, was take, was attempting it or had completed. So that was when I really started becoming more and more interested in teaching on it and, and learning everything that I could about it. Um, I'm also a veteran, so I know, you know, our suicide rate amongst veterans is incredibly high. Um, you know, and I think the hardest thing for me is that sometimes they don't give you the warning signs that they're going to take their life. And so that was really um, hard for me and even made it more important to me to teach everybody who has an, a, a, a touch point with that patient that they have some level of training so they can spot some things that just normally aren't spotable if you don't know what you're looking for. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And, it, and I know the first time that I was impacted by suicide, I was a freshman in college and, and, 100%. I did not at all see any of those signs. And it was only afterwards that, you know, talking to different people who knew, you know, who lived in lived with him, um, that, um, it, that we started piecing things together. You know, I think the, I think we, there's no way of ever knowing why someone dies um, by suicide, because the answers go with the person. Um, you know, exactly. they can, they can leave a note, 
that isn't going to be the whole story. Right. I, I think too, Kevin, one of the, the hardest things that I've recognized is, you know, while we're talking, I had this memory of back when I was in the Air Force, this was back in the, you know, late, mid to late 80s. And I had a friend whose father had completed suicide. And, you know, she was an older woman at that point, and, you know, her maybe late 20s. And, you know, I remember not even knowing how to talk to her about it and, and pretty much just saying, I'm sorry. And then, and then moving on, you know, now I wish I had known what I know now, I would have sat down and talked with her more about how, how it impacted her, how, you know, what it made her feel. I think a lot of times we, we end with the person who completed suicide and not recognizing that they leave an aftermath of people that we have to work with and we have to support. And so, you know, I found that because my practice predominantly, I, I would get the people um, who, who were the survivors of it. Yeah. And it was yeah. really tough to, to understand what they were going through until you start really listening. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, because, you know, throughout, throughout, you know, I first started working in corrections and then worked in a psychiatric hospital. And so Having, having a patient die from suicide or, or, you know, people being suicidal, obviously with a, with a in, acute inpatient care, that, that's, that's a pretty typical, typical thing um, that was happening. But, um, and then when I, you know, working as a school social worker as well, and then doing uh, clinical work in the evenings, I would see, see that aspect of it. But again, it was, um, it, it wasn't all the time. Right. It, you know, and, and then when I opened KP up there, I wasn't, again, it would, there would be times when someone would be suicidal, but there wasn't all the time. And I remember that ripple effect that you're talking about is when I got called. Um, I remember exactly the day it was and everything. And I had probably, we had probably helped out some, some other schools regarding, um, you know, if there had been a, I remember one, one little girl, she was maybe sixth grade. She had died from an asthma attack and we came in and helped do the post-vention um, processing and working with and giving support to, to the staff and the students. But when uh, in 2012, April, 2012 was the first time that we got brought into my son, my son and daughter's school. Um, when my son's uh, uh, classmate, she died uh, from suicide and it was everything that you said. the The entire school um, was in shock. They, you know, there was people didn't know what to do with it. I mean, so we were KP was there to help with that, and then, then because there was three of them, 2012, 14, and 15, um, he had three out of a hundred of his classmates die from suicide. That's really how Shatter Our Silence got got launched um, without any real plan other than I knew that I had to do something. Um, right. And that's really how that all happened. And then since then, of course, you know, it ends up, I know a whole lot more now than I ever did before because I've to teach it, I've had to study it, had to really spend more time. And then the more that I do that, the more that I have people that have family members or, or individuals themselves are on my radar more often now. Well, and I think it's amazing that once people know you're not afraid to talk about it, that you're you're willing to kind of get in the trenches with them, they're more likely to talk to you mm-hmm. about what's going on with them. Um, you know, I, I teach when I do teach on it, I always say to people, asking the question is not going to make somebody have the thought. Right. And a lot of people get com- a lot of people are confused by that. There's this myth that if you talk about it, you'll put the idea into somebody's mind. Yep. You know, and the reality is that it's already in their mind. You know, they they're already thinking it, and they're thinking. You know, 
I, what is it, what, in the 70s when they decriminalized um, suicide? Yeah. You know, that's why I don't use the word com uh, committed and I use the word completed because, yeah. the, you know, it's, it's, they're doing it because they're typically mentally ill. Mm -hmm. You know, there's something going on in their brain and they're not getting the support that they, that, that is helping them. They may be getting support, but it's not the, the support that's helping them. And I always, you know, say to people, when I'm, when I'm working with somebody, it's the first question I ask, you know, I, you know, I, I want to know, um, do you have thoughts? And, you know, sometimes you'll get that kind of that hemming and hawing of things. And, you know, people are afraid you're going to put them in the psych hospital if they say yes. And, you know, it's, it's really just layering that conversation and, and knowing the patient and um, getting them to trust you enough to sit down and talk about it and not fear the retaliation as they consider it to be sometimes uh, of what will happen if they actually speak about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, and I think, and I think that, you know, there's such a, there's a difference based upon demographic, right? Um, oh, so, you know, with, you know, the young adult mind, the adolescent young adult mind is so, so undeveloped and the, the propensity toward impulsiveness is different than the 40 year olds mind who, who may be able to, uh, again, taking in consideration that they've developed to be 40 years old emotionally, right. Um, that, that there's going to be a different mindset because it's totally counterintuitive, right? I mean, as, as human beings, as animals, it's, it's totally counterintuitive to want to take your own life because it's about survival. I mean, right. we're, we're designed to survive. So the, the, the degree of hopelessness and the degree of having to somehow work themselves into a place of not being afraid of the permanency of death is so counterintuitive. And I think that's where, like when you talk about uh, that some type or some form of mental illness is, is, is playing a part in their thinking. Oh yeah. Well, and I think, you know, I'm reminded of a, a woman who called me one time and um, she had a, a five-year-old and she said, I, I need to bring my five-year-old into therapy. I stated they wanted to kill themselves. And I said, well, did you ask them what the word kill themselves means? And she's like, well, no, I'm just, I'm panicked. I, I, I need to bring them in. I said, well, ask them what that word means to them and then call me back and we'll schedule an appointment. The child had no idea what the word meant. Like right. they had just heard somebody say, oh, I want to kill myself, you know, and, and people just say it so flippantly without understanding the, the impact of those words to maybe a five-year-old who is hearing that. Um, but the five-year-old had no clue, yep. you know, what they were even saying. Um, but I think people are so afraid to ask that question because what if the five-year-old says, I, you know, I want to do X, Y, and Z. And so, um, you know, I very rarely will find a, a five-year-old that has the language to to go there. Usually they don't know what they're talking about, but I think it's asking, uh, asking the questions, whether they're five, 15 or 50, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. You know, um, I know when I say something like, ah, you know, I'll say, I, I'm not even gonna say what I say, but sometimes I'll say something and I look at whoever I'm talking to, like, I don't mean to, I don't mean literally, like I'm yeah. okay, you yeah. know, because I want them to know like, no, I'm, I am okay, you know, right. and I can, but we have language that we have been accustomed to growing up that we say that sometimes slips out when, when we don't mean what we're saying. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, to your point where because of, you know, in our, in our world, right, we refer to it as counter-transference. So that, that, that aspect of, 
I'm having an emotional reaction because someone else is talking to me about something and I'm all and I can't see clearly because my translation of it is distracting me um, to, to either over respond or under respond. Um, but w- to your point, uh, you know, a 10 year old way say, because they're upset, I'm going to kill you. Doesn't necessarily mean they're homicidal. Exactly. Exactly. And, or let alone have a plan or a means to be homicidal. But you know, something else too, is when I'm, when I'm working with people, I was doing a training for uh, um, some military doctors this is decades ago. So it, you'd never figure out who he was because it was decades ago. Mm-hmm. So I am, I'm training and I talked to them. It was about child abuse and recognizing in the chart things that would be things you need to look at to, to see if a, a child was being abused and ask more questions about. And you might have to go back, you know, even 10 sessions or 10, 10 visits to like pick up a pattern of some things that are going on with, with a kiddo. And I remember him saying to me, look, I'm tired at the end of the day and I've got to get home to my family and I don't want to open up that can of worms per se. And, you know, my response was, well, then just send the child home to be abused some more. I mean, you know, but it's, it's no different with suicide. If you don't, if you're afraid to ask the questions, there's long-term consequences. And, you know, and I'm, I'm a clinician. I get, I get that really you're, you know, you've got seven minutes left. You've already run over, you've already run over the session by three minutes and you're, you know, seven minutes to your next patient. And you're like, oh, and then, you know, it comes up and there's a, there's that, that natural instinct, I think to go, oh no, I'm going to be late for my next patient. Um, And you have to fight that. And, you know, in some ways and go, and I want to make sure I'm saying this the right way, Kevin, but it's, it's recognizing that sometimes we don't want to know the answer to the questions mm-hmm. and we have to be willing to put ourselves out there, whether it's a patient or a friend or a, you know, or a colleague, like asking the question, if you notice something, if, if your knower, I always call it the knower, if your knower says something's not right, something's probably not right. right. And asking the question, yes, it might make you 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, like you might even have to cancel your next session, but you're, you have that one opportunity to, to change something. And, you know, I remember sitting on the floor with a client one time for two hours after session, because I knew if I sent this client to the hospital, they were going to lie. They, they, they were not going to be truthful when they got to the hospital, they were going to say they were fine. They were just having a moment um, and sitting with that client until I knew that client would, had worked through what it, what, what they needed to work through. Um, I, I don't know. I find it, I find it really important work. And so that's kind of why I do it still. No, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, because of that, um, that impact, that ripple effect that happens, that happens that once a person dies by suicide specifically, because there's so many unanswered questions, there's so, you know, it's, it, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things that happen when someone dies either by an accident or by homicide or, or by an illness or something that we deem as premature. Um, But usually in most of those cases, we have, we have somewhere where we can point our energy or anger or our grief or whatever it is with suicide. You know, I think it's one of those times where we go even more so internal. What could I have done? What should I have done? Why did this happen? You know, because it's almost not knowing for sure who to blame and which is a very human normal thing you know to- well there's all that feelings of guilt and and you know and guilt can come for a host of reasons yeah. you know you know 
gosh, there's just so many um, layers to the relationships and to, you know, the details that have happened in the weeks prior to, and, you know, it's just so many things that people carry around just a ton of different feelings with. And it's, I think that's the hardest thing that I've seen with um, survivors of, of completed suicide. They, they do go back and they ask the questions over and over again, and, you know, would have, should have, could have, you know, and, and I think it's the hardest place to live. Right. Absolutely. Do you think that's why we see an increase in suicide and family members and, and friends and stuff after somebody has completed suicide? What's the research? I haven't read anything on that recently. You, you know, I think it's, I think it's probably a combination of different reasons. I mean, one is, you know, um, you know, we talk about there, there are, there are factors that lead to a person having a predisposition, right? And so we, when we, when I'm teaching on it, it, it we talk about in the school system, it would be adverse childhood experiences, right? Uh, sexual assault, um, bullied, uh, domestic violence, uh, eating disorder, body image, self-harm, those types of factors that may, those, those are going to be, you know, those are going to be tendencies similar to, you know, similar to alcoholism or drug addiction. It doesn't, it isn't in a vacuum because it, it, it carries over not, not just the genetic susceptibility to addiction, but then the environmental aspect of addiction, the, the, you know, the, the, the interaction, the emotional unavailability, um, all those factors that play into it. So. Well, it's really hard to, I think for these, for people who have been through things and not for everybody, you know, we will talk to, about resiliency probably I'm sure in this next couple of minutes, but I think when you have uh, an experience in that with these adverse childhood experiences and you move forward in life with those things, I think sometimes it's really hard to even develop a true intimacy with anybody, you know, not, and I'm not talking about sexual intimacy. I'm talking about an emotional intimacy because you don't trust people. Mm -hmm. And so how are you going to go talk to somebody about feelings of wanting to take your life when you don't trust anybody enough to really share that experience that you're feeling with anybody else? And so I think that's a really big struggle for, for people. Um, now, I will say, you know, I know a lot of survivors of adverse childhood experiences who are rocking the world. And so, you know, fortunately, I think there's more resilient people out there than, than we realize. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that kind of, you know, I think number one, the biggest thing is to have conversations about, about the factors that lead to young adults or lead to suicide, right? And, and just talking about, about suicide and how to talk about suicide, right? What some do's and don'ts, those types of things, you know, the, the idea of, of ACEs, right? When I went out to, you know, Edwards Air Force Base a year ago, we, you know, we, we talked about, you know, being able to ACE, of being able to ask those questions that you're referring to it, doing in a, a non-judgmental caring way. And then, and then being having the courage to escort somebody or bring somebody to get help, um, regardless if that's a counselor um, or if it, that means a higher level of treatment or, or whatever it may be. And, and so we can educate and in, in about being able to, 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 to talk about, break the silence of, around it. And we can educate about these different, different factors that allow someone to be, because someone just doesn't wake up and go, oh, today I want to die. That that isn't. There's there's things that have happened in that person's life, and their perception about which is their reality of how those things are, and in the sense of hopelessness. But I, I I also want to talk about 
the development of resilience, right? So, so in other, in you know, I think if the pandemic has taught us nothing, it, it's taught us that we know that we can't control all the stressors in our life. All right. we can control is how we manage stress. Right. And, and so we won't, won't be able to control all the risk factors in a person's life, but developing, helping that person develop protective factors really, for me, I believe is the biggest antidote to an individual. Um... Go ahead. Oh, I, I think so too. And it, you know, I had my little notes that left in the other room, but I remember it now, <laughs> you know, I really, um, I think the amount of social media and, um, watching other people's lives and not really living, you know, really impacts, um, especially our adolescents and, you know, our young adults, um, you know, I can even find myself, I, I had to remove TikTok from my phone because, you know, I could find myself sitting there and an hour later, you know, I mean, I always joked around and said, oh, I'd get recipes off of there. Um, but in between, and I did, I love to love to cook. I should have said that was one of my things too, but I, would find myself scrolling. And even though I'm looking for food, sometimes, you know, these negative things would come up on my Facebook and, you know, it's an algorithm. If you sit on it too long, they send you more, more negative, more negative, more negative. And I think, you know, when our, when our, when we as a population are hearing negative and seeing negative and not taking care of ourselves and not exercising and not eating right, you know, what is the statistic like 30 minutes of cardio, I think it reduces your anxiety, depression levels by like, like 60, 70%. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's huge. But if we're not moving for 30 minutes a day and we're we're sitting feeding our brain negative stuff all the time and, and negatives relative to whoever you are. Right. Right. I mean, negative might you know, I might not find one thing negative and you find something, you know, the same exact thing negative. So we have to remind ourselves that what's what's negative to me. So going along that line. Right. So this. So what what's the, what happens you know, chemically, when, when we're exposed to something that, that we perceive as being negative, right? So if the same information, somebody else would see that as positive, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Tampa Bay fans yesterday saw that yesterday's win as positive. New Orleans fans saw that as negative, correct? <laughs> right? Correct. Very correct. And, and so, and, and then, so what is the impact of something being negative? right? So something positive will give us dopamine, help us feel good. Something negative is going to be perceived as a threat so that we are then, regardless, regardless of how much, um, how much ownership you have in the New Orleans Saints or not is irrelevant. It's just that you perceive their loss as, as negative, And then that's somehow a threat to some place and chemicals are released and if we well, don't... it's almost like a toxic relationship, me and the saints right now. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? It's like, and I love my saints. So, yep. um, but you know, it's, it's, the, it's like you said, it's the ups and the downs, the ups and the downs. Yep. And if we're not doing anything with those chemicals, just experiencing it, if we don't burn them off in, in some way, where do they go? Well, they don't go anywhere. They just interfere with our sleep. They interfere with our, our relationships, those types of things. So, exactly. so when, so when you think of, so two two things I want to make sure we touch on before before we before we end the idea of developing resilience and and helping develop resilience within ourselves and and helping others and the idea of meaning finding you know Viktor Frankl talks about the, the the you know the primary thing in life is to find meaning in life 
And uh, he says that's the- Well, he says, in, he says in his book, you know, when you understand the why, you can endure the how. Yep. You know, so when I, when I understand why, what my purpose is, and that's a purpose that I create for myself, by the way. You know, yep. it's not, and, and I think that was for me, um, you know, growing up, and, and I've talked about this in the previous podcast in a, in a pretty dysfunctional home, I had to find out my why, my purpose. And one of the things that I really, really focused on in my career was how do I educate? Because, you know, if you look back in, in, in my experience growing up, nobody educated me on talking and standing up for myself and saying, it's, it's okay to talk to somebody. It's okay to tell people bad things are happening. I was actually given the opposite message that you don't do that. And so for me, I had to not only be resilient to overcome that, but I had to find out my, my why. And once I found out my, figured out my why, like I'm here to educate people. I found a how, you know, okay. So I had to go get my degree and I had to do this and I had to do that. And I had to, I had to take a chance and put books out there and, you know, and, you know, either they're bestsellers or not bestsellers. But, you know, I remember one little guy talking to me when I was at a school reading and he had come forward about some in the middle of the reading about, you know, his father being abusive to his mom. And, you know, if that's the only little boy that I helped, uh, you know, with the writing of my books, that was enough, you know, yeah. it's just, that was my how, um, I don't know what he's going to do with his life. I don't know, you know, the fact that he was able to speak up and what that's going to do for him 25 years from now. So I, you know, I'm just, I get chills thinking about it actually, because I'm like, that's the how. And I think that's why I love, you know, Victor Frankel, because I, you know, I read that book and I, I can't think of the name of, I want to say, um, man's search for meaning. Yep. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, reading that book, I have, if you saw my copy, it's highlighted and written in and underlined. And, you know, I go back to those quotes when I'm really looking at something to help somebody, you know, in my office. So, but yeah. So yeah, went off. no, 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 exactly. And I think, you know, I, another thing that he, he, when I was doing some research with, with his work in particular, um, was talking about this idea that, you know, developing or f discovering your why, right, your, your, your meaning isn't necessarily done by going and sitting, you know, sitting on a rock somewhere and waiting for it just to come to you, right. And, and, and that wasn't, that was interesting for me to actually, because it, it's never worked that way for me, but I've always thought that's how it was supposed to happen. So, you know, it's, it, well, he talks about it in that book about how, you know, he had two men who were contemplating suicide, one who had a daughter waiting for him in a foreign country, and one who had some books on science that only he had the knowledge to complete. Very, two very different things, you know, and, and, and like you said, it didn't come to, Victor Frankl or those men while they were sitting on a rock, it was, it came through conversation. It came through really finding out who you are by what you do and what you believe and what, what gives your heart joy. And, you know, I think for me, that's what resilience really is. It, 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 and, this, and it could be different for everybody, you know, as we've said before, but for me, resilience was every day waking up, knowing there was something I wanted to do to make this place that we call earth better. Yeah. And, and, discovering right this idea that you're you know either through counsel or through mm -hmm. teaching or through writing you your your purpose your why is, is to um help people right and mm -hmm. and 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 obviously help people more specifically social emotionally right and right. and so you have different vehicles to do that but it's it's what drives us 
when we're tired. It's it's what drives us when we feel, uh, what's the point, you know, and if we stay true to that, you know, because we, I think it is about discovering, like I just, just recently did a wedding and officiated a wedding and I, and I talked to them about, uh, do we really fall in love or do we discover that we're in love? Like, mm-hmm. like, like afterwards, like we've been loving and now we go, I think I'm in love, you know? And, and so it's like, we discover it after we've been doing it. Right. And, okay. and so, so we like, we're, we're doing something right. Whatever that may be. And, and, you know, and, and putting ourselves into it. And then we recognize that it's giving us energy back. Right. And I think right. that's that's when we're getting closer to our to our why to that to that meaning. Right. And I think that's going to be the hard. I think that's the hard part. If I were the listener sitting on the other end of this and asking the question, well, how, how do I get there? How do I how do I get to that why? You know. Okay. So for you know for you for for me it might have been you know counseling and writing and reading and you know uh, helping people. For somebody else, it's going to be something different. And I think you just keep trying things until you get to what works for you. You know, counseling's not, some people don't, don't um, engage in counseling. They, it's not their thing, um, but they have really great friends that they talk to. Some people, counseling is, you know, I, I truly believe in counseling, obviously. Um, so I, I think for me, it's been the catalyst to, to drive me as well and help me you know, explore my fears a little bit more, like writing my book, you know, uh, my books, it was a fear of what if I fail? Well, I'm going to fail if I don't try, you know, and I was go to Michael Jordan. He's my favorite, you know, my yep. favorite quote about him. He tried a thousand times to hit a shot and he's missed how many free throws, but yet he's successful because he, he keeps trying. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where, you know, people will find that resiliency and just that ability to keep trying. I, it goes back to no, go ahead, sorry. no, no. It goes back to my friend who and I won't say his name, but I'll I'll connect you with him to be on your podcast, who who played uh, college ball, and he, when he you know he was going to the NFL, he was slotted, he was going, then he had a career-ending injury, and he had to find himself to what what was what what drove him, and now he's incredibly successful, and so you know, but he had to find that what what was his drive, what was going to make him be successful. And so I think that's for me, it was just finding what, what really leads me to where I need to be. Yeah. And I, and I do think it, 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 I don't know if the why or the meaning shifts, but how we deliver it um, Mm -hmm. definitely shifts. I mean, right now, you know, I'm more focused on teaching and leadership development than I am doing one-on-one counseling. And, but what I'm doing in leadership development and teaching is very, very similar to what I was doing when I was doing counseling. It's just on a different. Well, and, and, and now scale. you're at that level where you're teaching other people how to do what is, is naturally a gift for you, you know, and teaching, teaching that I, I can tell you, I, I, I'm going to give a shout out. He's, he's passed away since, but um, Dr. Deshaun uh, was one of my first instructors. And I have to tell you, I, I learned more from that man. I believe I'm the counselor and person that I am because he wasn't afraid to challenge me and, and push me to grow. Um, but, you know, if he was still seeing patients, I may not have run into him. I may not have had that experience with him. And I think we do, we, we grow and we evolve and we change you and I may end up back in counseling, you know, yep. doing counseling again one day. Um, maybe not. I mean, who knows what, yep. what will happen, but 
I think that's the great thing about resiliency is you find the next, you find that next place. Yeah. And I, and I do, and I agree with you that in, in all stories of resilience, right. They all, they have a couple of prerequisites, you know, to, to, for someone to be, you know, for someone to be resilient, right. There's a, and, and if that is the goal is to be resilient, that's who we admire the Michael Jordans, the, you know, the, you know, the Martin Luther King Jr., the different individuals who we look at historically as people who had not only resolve, but were resilient. Well, you know, come of the pre prerequisites, which is not super popular today, is that you have to have failed. You have right. to have setbacks. You have to have right. obstacles in your path and uh, you work through them. Yeah. I don't know Michael Jordan, but if he's ever on your podcast, you have to have me on. That's got to be the rule. Um, but you know, one of my one of my favorite people to use as quotes, especially you know, with adolescent males, they they all know who he is. Even even today, they everybody knows who Michael Jordan is. Um, but little, very few people that I actually have in my office come in and I say, "Did you know Michael Jordan was cut from his his high school team?" No, well, no. You know, they don't realize the pain he went through. The 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 probably some of the, I don't know if he ever had feelings of depression. I don't know. So I'm not speaking for him, but I would say I would probably be pretty upset and disappointed if I hadn't made the basketball team, especially when I know I'm good. Yep. And so it drove him to do, to do more. You know, I have another friend who, who played in the NFL and he said to me when he, I said, what well, was the greatest moment of your career ever? And he said, the day I didn't get cut. And they said, you're on the team. He said, because I wasn't the best on the team, but I was the hardest working. And I, and I pushed myself in ways that a lot of people didn't push themselves. And I said, that was your greatest day. And he goes, yeah, he goes, not, not the championship rings I won, not the this, not the that, that day when everything I had worked for, you know, I, I, I had some, I, I got to where I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And so, and then he just went to the next level of what do I want to be next? Yep. Yep. And I think, I think that piece, especially like, again, this month is, you know, how to raise the awareness about suicide. Yes, it's, it is talking about it. It's teaching people that to listen and how to listen. And, and that there are factors that someone just doesn't wake up and say, okay, today's a good day that I don't, I want, I don't want my life to be anymore. And, and so that, that isn't how it goes. And, but the antidote, because we, for me, I don't believe we can just talk about the awareness and education. We also have to educate and and provide opportunities for the antidote, which I believe is the protective factors. It's the resilience development. It's the searching and developing opportunities for meaning um, that we can then take and we can then embody in our life and then explore those. Right. And it all goes back to, to in my opinion, to starting the conversation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, if, if you're not starting the conversation, then whether it's at a micro level or a macro level. Yeah. And, you know, you said something and I know we've, we've, we've talked about it, you know, offline is, is that like in a company, right? So you may have clinicians who are trained specifically um, to, to talk with individuals when they come behind closed doors, but those same individuals, their, their meaning, their why maybe at the front desk you know, and creating a space that is, that is, in, is inviting, engaging and doing that part of it, or maybe in the billing department or, but they have client contact. And so it's important, not only because that, that may very well be their why that, that may be their why position um, right. and, and how critically important they are to the team 
as much as the therapist or the psychiatrist or, or the CEO or whoever. Well, and I think too, you know, one of the, the reasons why I love training administrative support staff people is that when I'm on the phone, let's say I'm an administrative person and I'm on the phone with somebody, I don't know that they're, that they have SI, I, you know, I don't know that they're going through deep depression or, you know, that they've had a major loss or whatever. I don't need to know any of that. I just need to know that I'm, I'm working with people who are coming to us, especially in a, in a, in a clinical world that are hurting. Um, and what, at whatever level that is, they're hurting. And so being really kind and supportive, and it just shows them another level of compassion, another level of, you do have a value. You know, I, I, when people start getting mad, I mean, I've had people screaming at me on the phone at times, especially in my undergrad years, when I was working at a doctor's office at the front desk, people screaming and yelling at me. And I, and I just had to stand my, you know, stay cool to who I was and just listen and be supportive. And usually they come back a week or two later and apologize to me, you know, and say, Hey, I'm, I'm really sorry. I, I was just having a really bad day. Um, But you really helped me get through that bad day. And so, you know, it's just one more layer of how do we help folks? Yeah. hundred percent. So Teresa, thank you as always for coming out to the show and and thank you for sharing some of your, you know, insight and experience and what, what you're doing. If, If someone wanted to get a hold of you and, and, order, you know, your two, you know, the two books that you have right now. And as you're getting ready to finish up your third one, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you? Well, they can always get it on Amazon, but if they have any questions, they can always reach out to me. And it's a weird email because everybody knows me as Teresa, but it's Tammy at G at gmail.com. And that's my, my personal email. And they can reach out to me. And, um, you know, I do make donations to, to, um, organizations as well of those books, because I, you know, there are a lot of organizations who don't have big budgets. Um, so, you know, definitely reach out. Perfect. Well, thank you again. And thank you for everything that you're doing at Refresh Now and, and bringing um, a level of quality education um, for all our levels of, of, of staff. And so I, I appreciate that. Me too. And I appreciate all you do and look forward to working with you some on um, Shatter the Silence. I, you know, we, we've said it a hundred times, but start the conversation and, and shatter the silence. Thank you. As uh, as anybody who's been listening to our conversation today with Teresa and I, if you know somebody that may be struggling and could benefit from, from this conversation, please forward it to them, uh, pass it along to them, and then take um, any tidbits that we've talked about today and, and, and share with them as well. As always, thank you for being here and look forward to being with you next week. Take care.